Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Radio Gag, the weekly Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I'm Sarah Germaine Lilly. And I'm Robert DiDominic. Today on Radio Gag, we focus on intimate partner violence, the tragic relationship violence that destroys lives across America and is a factor in many mass shootings. Our In Memoriam honors Patricia May Springer, sister of intimate partner violence advocate, Barbara Pierce Stowe. We will hear the latest gun violence prevention news. And we'll hear from advocacy organizations, including We All Really Matter, a domestic violence intervention organization in Harlem. And we'll discuss the problem of intimate partner violence within the queer community and how it can be addressed and reduced. Robert, when I first went to a gag meeting, the first thing that I heard was the In Memoriam. Why do we start our meetings and our show with the In Memoriam? We begin every meeting and every show by honoring a victim of gun violence to remember why we were all there, to remember why we are working to end gun violence. I remember the first In Memoriam I did was for uh, Victoria Soto, one of the teachers killed in Sandy Hook. Um, it's a very powerful moment at the meeting because it puts a face to the work that we do. It's a person, it's a mother, a brother, a sister, a cousin, a friend that's not with us anymore. Thank you. This week's In Memoriam is contributed by my friend Barbara Pierce Stowe and she is an advocate for victims of domestic violence. And today we honor her sister who was killed in a domestic violence incident. My name is Barbara Stowe and I'm a domestic violence and gun violence prevention advocate. I would like to share with you what propelled me into volunteering. I grew up in a large, loving home. My sister, Patricia Springer, and I were attached at the hips. We did everything together. She was a beautiful soul who was always there for me. She was funny and always lit up the room with her laughter. She was kind, deeply compassionate and giving. She was the best sister in the world to me. On September 15, 1997, she was shot several times and killed by her estranged boyfriend. Three days before her murder, she had fled after he had beaten her severely. She assumed he would be working and returned to retrieve her belongings. Unknown to her, he was lying in wait for her. God only knows how long he had hid behind a door armed with a rifle. As she was approaching, he kicked the door open and began shooting. He shot her knees out as she turned around. He shot her in the hip and back. Patty fell forward. He walked up to her, putting his boot into her back and unloaded into the side and back of her head. 
He was a convicted felon who never should have had access to a gun. My sister's murder was so preventable. We desperately need to close loophole laws to keep guns out of the hands of violent felons such as my sister's killer. And in South Carolina, where I live, domestic violence is the leading cause of death for women and one in four are abused by their intimate partner. And 90% of those are women who are murdered by their intimate partner and are shot. If you are being abused, please call 1-800-791-SAFE. Do not become another statistic like my sister. Please remember this much. If you are silent, it perpetuates violence. If you know a coworker, a friend or family member that is abusing their intimate partner, speak up. You could be saving a life. Thank you, Barbara, for sharing your story. We're so sorry that you lost Patty. And today we remember her. She sounded like an amazing woman. And now the gun violence prevention news. This just in. From San Francisco, California Attorney General Rob Bonta today announced the launch of the California Department of Justice's DOJ, first in the nation Office of Gun Violence Prevention, a unit dedicated to developing strategies and working with stakeholders statewide to address the gun violence epidemic. This innovative new office, the first Office of Gun Violence Prevention under the leadership of a state attorney general will provide centralized support from the DOJ for partners to implement strategic and innovative programs to reduce gun violence. California has long been a national leader in effectively preventing gun violence with one of the lowest rates of gun violence deaths in the country. Despite efforts at the state level in 2020, firearms were the leading cause of death for children in the United States. Gun violence is a true public health crisis that requires immediate and proactive attention. Today, Attorney General Bonta outlined the new office, announced a nationwide search for its director, and launched a new webpage to provide the public with information about the office and resources for learning about California's work and strategies to further reduce gun violence. And from The Trace, and this is from August, 2022, Every year since 2013, House Democrats have introduced a bill to repeal the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, or PLACA, which shields the firearms industry from lawsuits over harms committed with its products. Every year, that effort has stalled in committee, captive to political gridlock that shows little sign of waning. But a new push led by gun reform minded states may have found a way through the industry's special legal immunity. In the last year, legislators in California, Delaware, New Jersey, and New York have passed laws that require gun companies to impose reasonable controls on their distribution chains and more carefully monitor how and where they sell firearms. 
Their greater significance, however, may lay in setting the stage for governments and private citizens to sue gun makers by exploiting a narrow exception in PLACA. If successful, such suits could mark the first time in nearly 20 years that gun companies have faced accountability in court for careless sales practices and reshape how the firearms industry distributes guns to the American public. And this headline recently ran in Chicago newspapers, Highland Park 4th of July Massacre, first lawsuits filed call attack predictable and preventable. Let's hope this new strategy gives victims, survivors, and communities tools to fight against the proliferation of guns and the irresponsible marketing practices of gun makers. Next, we have an opinion piece from U.S. Representative Jamie Raskin from Maryland on the Second Amendment. And this is from his editorial in the New York Times that ran on September 27th. Let's start with this basic reality check. Of the more than 900 people charged with crimes tied to January 6th, these crimes include smashing windows, assaulting Capitol officers, and conspiring to overthrow or interfere with the government. Not a single charge has been dismissed by any federal or state court on the grounds that the Second Amendment or any part of the Constitution gives them the right to engage in violent insurrection against the government. Rassin goes on to say that this is for excellent reason. The Constitution treats insurrection and rebellion as political dangers, not protected rights. Article 1 gives Congress the power to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. The Guarantee Clause in Article 4 tells the United States to guarantee a Republican form of government to the states and protect them against invasion and on application of the legislature or the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. These provisions go all the way back to the 1780s after the Shays Rebellion, an armed uprising in Massachusetts. After the Civil War, the 14th Amendment disqualified from public office anyone who had sworn an oath to support the Constitution, but then participated in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States. Hmm. Despite all this abundant repudiation of insurrection and rebellion in the body of the Constitution, some House Republicans still parrot NRA talking points and insist that the Second Amendment and Invisible Ink protects the right of private citizens to overthrow the government by force. The Supreme Court has been clear that the Second Amendment's reference to a well-regulated militia means well-regulated by the government. In 1886, the court upheld an Illinois law criminalizing private paramilitary groups as a legitimate measure necessary to the public peace, safety, and good order. The militia is not some reserve power to rebel against the government, but the well-organized instrument by which state and federal governments have opposed domestic violence. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence or intimate partner violence, 
call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Available 24 hours, seven days a week for confidential assistance from a trained advocate. You can also find more resources on legal assistance in English and Spanish at womenslaw.org. You are listening to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns weekly show here on listener-sponsored commercial-free radio, WBAI. We're here every Tuesday at 2.30, bringing you the latest in gun violence prevention movement news. Next, we'll hear from Stephanie McGraw of WARM, We All Really Matter. Stephanie is a passionate advocate for survivors of domestic violence and spoke with Radio Gag in July. Gays Against Guns is collaborating with WARM on an upcoming event in October. Thank you to Libby Edwards for connecting us with WARM and Stephanie McGraw. Welcome listeners. We are here with Stephanie McGraw, the founder of WARM. We all really matter. An organization that supports victims of domestic violence. And Stephanie speaks as someone who has the lived experience of a survivor as well. Stephanie, welcome to our show. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. Stephanie, would you tell us what led you to create WARM and how do you go about supporting victims of domestic abuse? So what led me to create WARM is that 15 years ago when I found myself in in an endless loop of despair leading to nowhere but uh, continuing of pain and suffering. Um, And I find myself uh, going um, to a domestic violence shelter out of the state when I came back to New York, I realized that there just was wasn't any there wasn't any women that represented uh, my my color skin, um, my uh, my lived experience, and it was no one that I can really identify with. And there there just wasn't the resources in the Harlem area 15 years ago. I know that you have said at the town hall that the WARM has a very active uh, collaboration with the police in the local precinct. How does that and help protect people who are being abused? Well, thank you for asking that question. It's, it's very interesting and it's very unique because it's not something that you would um, expect to see or it was something that, again, did not exist. But the reason why it was very important for us as Black women to go into these departments, because we knew, we know in our community that Black women, women of color, suffer uh, 30% more than the white counterpart. We know that during the pandemic that there were a lot of women of color that was trapped in these very horrific situations with these men, and now they were in prison and locked in with these abusers, and abusers had a like get out of jail card free. Like I can do what I want to do now because the world is shut down. So all of that information, I just decided to say, you know what? 
I'm going to go on to one of the local precincts that started with one here in my community, the 3-2 precinct. Um, my office is on 126, the 3-2 precinct is on 135th. And the numbers at the 3-2 precincts are one of the highest radio calls of domestic violence in the city, one of them. So we went in, we talked with the commanding officer, we talked with the DV officer, we told them, here's our program, here's what we're doing. And um, if any women that are coming in and need help, we're here. We stayed open during a whole pandemic. So the commanding officer, Greeny, started sending victims to us. It was so successful with them getting into us, us getting them out, getting them to shelters, uh, moving them out into safety, that he told his officer, okay, well, we're going to work with Warren because there's nobody else around right now. And that's how it started with just one commanding officer. He sent one young lady over to me. She had just got out the hospital. She had a, a broken arm. She had a two-year-old son. Her, her boyfriend was very dangerous. He had not yet got picked up. And when she came to me, I just told her my story. I'm a black woman. And um, 15 years ago, I was almost murdered. And if you don't get out now, he's going to kill you. And it was just that simple. The police don't have that kind of way to reach some of these young black women because they are trained to do their job and they don't understand this side of the coin. But we do. And that young lady, we got out the same day she came. We went to the winter home with the police. We packed her stuff up and we got her to a safe house. And that's how my job, my work started with the precinct. Now I've spread it now to 15 precincts because from that commanding officer, Inspector Vincent Greeny, um, you know, he started talking about our work. And if you officers and any of these precincts need help, Miss McGraw, boom, we are really mad as dead. So that's how it started. That's amazing. And I understand from our conversation the other night that you were one of the first people called when Asia Johnson was murdered on the Upper East Side and that she had been a previous victim of violence by her partner. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? So when I got the call that night, it was somewhere around nine-ish or so. And I got the call from the uh, local precinct and I was actually winding down, getting ready to get in bed. But because we are first responders, we, we are the critical first responder team that get on the scene immediately. We don't let no grass, nothing grow. We get out there. Look, what do you need us to assist you with? We're here. If the families need help, we here. We offer that immediate help because the trauma is just so great. So when we got there, the tragedy had already happened. Um, I did speak about what happened that night and um, the next day we decided to do a candlelight vigil because that's who we are. So she was in a domestic violence shelter. So let me just give you that information. That's how she got to 95th Street and 3rd and Lexington. Um, because she was somewhere in a shelter somewhere in the neighborhood, I can't disclose, uh, but the abuser was able to lure her out. And what could have been done different? And this is a, probably a little bit, Libby, about what I spoke to you about in my cry. Um, Sometimes when you're on the ground, with your boots on the ground and you're doing the work and you're embedded and invested and, you know, you don't have time to do all the major stuff behind the scene. But one of the things that makes it very critical is resources. And right now, 
warm has a lack of resources because there's a lack of funding and all the money is going to these big conglomerates that are out there that have really great names and I don't get me wrong because they've done some great work but we are a uniquely different design organization that go in and help women when there's a critical need when there's someone has been taken away from us and we have a unique style we we are all women of color and Latino women that have had the lived experience and if Asia would have had just like a mustard seed of how dangerous it is. Because let me just go back 15 years ago. I didn't know how dangerous it was because 15 years ago, I almost died. And when I tell women all the time, don't let Asia life or all the other women I took away, don't let her end be your end. But be, when you grow up, when you grow up in, in um depravity, when you grow up in lack, when you grow up in deserts, when you go grow up in um, marginalized community, when you grow up in communities that's underserved, when you grow up in poverty, like I did, you know, as my mother's a black woman, our duty was to just try to get food on our table. So she wasn't capable of meeting our basic needs, like making sure we got an education, making sure that we were fed and we were well-rounded and understood the dangers so domestic violence for me was normal. I thought this, this is how we grow up. I saw my father beat my mother and all my other friends. And so we didn't have the information and the education. So when I was left for dead and wind up in the hospital, it was a social worker that said to me, cosmetolic city I live in, I live around all this greatness. How in the world, I'm not gonna know that Domestic violence has a name and it's a crime, not a shame. But it took me all them years to understand that that's what it was because I didn't have no identification. So you can't fix what you can't see. So for Asia and myself, that's why I came back to Harlem and to deal with women of color because no one told me about how dangerous it was. And I didn't know the signs. And every time when you're trying to leave an abuser, that's when most of the time women are killed because domestic violence is all about power and control. So, so if Asia had that information about it's dangerous when you're out, stay out, then get some resources, get some, get some services. We got some amazing work we're doing here with women. And to wrap up, is there anything you'd like to say about WARM? Yes. Yeah, so thank you so much. Uh, WARM is a non-for-profit domestic violence organization. We are boots on the ground, grassroots in the communities. And we are an organization that physically stayed open during the whole pandemic because we knew the need was critical. So we're located at 8 West 126th Street. And that is in Harlem on 126 between Lenox and 5th. We have a hotline number that you can uh, call us at 917-736-1046. And we have an office number that we could be reached at at 917-736-1621. You can go to our website at weallreallymatter.org if you want to make donations. Look, we are a grassroots, so we heavily rely 
on donations. If you want to come volunteer and offer whatever your gift that you have, if you are, if you are a publicist, if you are someone that knows how to design websites, you know, we need, um, we are always in need of uh, people to come share their gifts with us. And you can also reach us at, um, on our Twitter page, on our Instagram page, that's warm, W-A-R-M, NYC. That's our Instagram page. And we're open Monday through Friday from 10, from 9 to 6 p.m. And we're available to help you. Well, I know you're in the middle of a hundred things there, and we thank you so much. Uh, I hope that I will be able to get up and say hello in person and see what you're doing. I would very much like to do that. And we thank you just from the bottom of our hearts for this great, great interview. I think it will Thanks. be very thank helpful. You so much. Thank you for having me. And, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to reach um, and, and, and educate uh, people in the city that don't really know about it and maybe reach some women that are in abuse relationships. So we just hope and pray that we uh, this is an opportunity to bring a little more awareness. So thank you all. Thank you. thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Libby. Stephanie McGraw, thank you for the work that you do with We All Really Matter, supporting survivors of domestic violence and for remembering and working with the community, the families, the people, the loved ones that are left behind. Thank you. Segments of the LGBTQ population experience elevated rates of intimate partner violence, yet a lack of data limits our understanding of the full scope of gun-related intimate partner violence in this community. While intimate partner violence involving guns represents a bleak problem, research shows that the following federal and state policies and practices that disrupt abusers' access to guns can save lives. Robert, can you tell us what some of the policy solutions are? These solutions include background checks, ERPO red flag laws. We need to strengthen state laws to prohibit domestic abusers from possessing guns and require abusers to relinquish the guns they already have. Yes, they are coming for your guns. Third, strengthening the federal background check system to keep guns out of dangerous hands by closing deadly loopholes and addressing deficiencies, including the boyfriend loophole, the Charleston loophole, the unlicensed sale loophole, and finally, to improve civil and criminal domestic violence records in the background check system. The fourth solution centers on gun dealers and their responsibility requiring gun dealers to notify state or local law enforcement when a domestic abuser or a convicted stalker attempts to buy a gun and fails a background check. How are these not laws already? Seriously. Five is funding and research. Every month, an average of 70 women, 70 women are shot and killed by an intimate partner. This statistic comes from the every town analysis of CDC and the National Violent Death Reporting System in 2019. Now it's time to end our show. Robert, can you please tell us about working with GAG? 
Um, working with Gag for me has been has been a really profound experience and one that I didn't think would happen when I joined Gag. I used to be a teacher and I was tired of doing 5K runs for teachers killed in mass shootings. I got tired of having lockdowns. I got tired of all the talking points from Republican politicians. I got tired of school massacres and massacres at a movie theater, a concert, a church, a supermarket. I mean, the list goes on and on. And joining GAG, I felt part of a community. I felt that I was doing something worthwhile, doing something important. Um, I formed friendships. I've met amazing people. I've traveled to Virginia, to the NRA headquarters. I, my friends ask me um, a lot um, how, you know, you're always protesting and always marching and always gagging, they like to call it. And I tell them they can get involved too. It doesn't take hours a week. It doesn't take, you can get involved as little or as much as you want. It could be an hour a month. It could be an hour a week. There are so many ways for you to find out about GAG. We are everywhere. So if you like social media, you can follow us on Instagram at Gays Against Guns New York. That's also our Facebook, Gays Against Guns NY on Facebook and Instagram. Our website is gaysagainstguns.net, not .com, net. So it's gaysagainstguns.net. We are also on Twitter at Gag No Guns. You can go to our website to learn about upcoming actions. We hold one action a month. We also meet once a month in New York City, if you are local. We meet the last Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. in Manhattan at the LGBT Center on 13th Street. Our next meeting is 1027, where we'll be planning all kinds of great actions and protests. You can also zoom into these meetings if you are not in New York or if you can't be there on Thursday nights. Everyone is welcome at any and all gag events. And another great way to get involved is by becoming a BAI buddy. A BAI buddy is someone who keeps our unique volunteer-run radio show on the air by giving a small donation every month. And really, folks, a modest monthly contribution, 5 to $10, can really help keep us on the air at BAI to bring you this show every week. Just go to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 and become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. Thank you. And don't forget, you can listen to our previous shows anytime on the WBAI website or on any major podcast platform. Thank you, listeners. And we leave you tonight with our fabulous political singing queer pet, Sing Out Louise. Have a great one. God help America. God help America.
raised us to make us more great. Tell the bigots and the gun nuts every green.